Hi, I'm Keith McCullough. Now, welcome back to another edition of Real Conversations, where it's my pleasure to have my friend, chief economist, chief strategist, chief everything at this point at Tressus, uh, Mr. Daniel Lacaille, who's also, and incidentally, the author of a new book, his nice-looking picture right on the cover of that book, called The Central <laughs> Bank Trap, Escape from the Central Bank Trap, which I appreciated quite a bit, Daniel, and, and thanks for taking the time to write it, uh, not only because you were uh, rightly critical of central banks, but you also... Uh, unlike many, provided some solutions. So first, uh, I want to welcome you back, but also give you an opportunity to just you know, maybe just tell people why you felt compelled to write this book. You've, you've written um, some very good books on different topics, energy, uh, full cir- circle now on, on central banking, but you've always had an opinion on this, and I wondered why now. Mm, thank you very much, Keith. Thanks for having me, and always a pleasure. Uh, why now? Because I think that um, if, if, if we had this conversation maybe five years ago, six years ago, I think that uh, there would be a, a, you know, a certain level of division in terms of whether monetary policy was something that was working. There could be uh, questions about whether uh, central banks were doing the right things. But I think that right now it's become quite consensual that, uh, the, that monetary policy and, and uh, extremely loose monetary policy is not working at least the way that it was expected to work. And, uh, but we hear lots of things of different magic solutions now and and instead of centering on real solutions what we are hearing is oh uh, it's not that uh, the the central banks are doing the wrong thing is that money should be created by government mm-hmm. it's that uh, we should print money like they did in um, in the French Revolution, and uh, that would certainly help inflation for sure. Uh, so uh, what I wanted to do was to take the conversation from what was intended when all this uh, QE uh, nightmare started and, and, and to provide some realistic solutions and also uh, a guidance for investors to, to, to navigate uh, the environment in which uh, this monetary policy becomes part of the liquidity. And blow by blow, this is a great book. You know, really getting to the point. And, and, and some of your summary points are so simple, uh, but so accurate. This one, the, one of my favorite one-liners, central banks do not print growth. You've been saying this one for a long time, but now we finally have it in print. Nobody can take it away from you. Uh, can you. Can you just explain simply what that means? Yes, I think that the, the idea that uh, central banks are going to um, improve economic conditions so much that uh, growth is going to magically appear, that central banks are going to create the, let's say, the, 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 the foundation for uh, businesses, for companies, for, uh, for families to decide to consume, to invest, is, is simply incorrect. <laughs> and I think that uh, one thing, obviously, is that central banks what they can do, which is to uh, provide liquidity and to maybe uh, generate a level of, of uh, uh, let's say, uh, backstop in the markets in an environment of, 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 uh, of panic. But what they cannot do is to make people decide to invest or force uh, consumers to, to, to be more confident because people... You know, the first thing that they're not is amnesiac. The second thing that they're not is stupid. So everybody uh, uh, perceives reality and sees that interest rates 
uh, are an anomaly, interest rates so low are an anomaly, and therefore they, instead of t taking more risk, they take less risk, and they also see that extreme liquidity is not changing uh, the perception of overcapacity, the perception of business opportunities, and therefore companies, instead of investing, decide to buy back shares and, and, and use that liquidity to increase dividends. It, it makes all sense. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's, so you, you debunk that, basically, look, you, can't, you can print money, but you can't print growth. But then you're, one of my, uh, I guess, my second favorite one-liner from Daniel Lacaye is cheap money becomes very expensive in the long run. So what do you mean exactly. by that? Well, basically, all this uh, massive liquidity, um, what happens is that uh, all that money is going somewhere and we don't uh, pay attention to it because uh, it is not creating CPI, core inflation, it is not creating, it's not making prices rise. However, it is creating very big uh, perverse incentives. Those perverse incentives are very clear right now. We've seen in the latest Bank of International Settlements uh, report how zombie companies have gone through the roof. We have seen also how uh, excess capacity and uh, debt are perpetuated so instead of helping deleverage what it what what excess liquidity and low interest rates does is to uh, obviously incentivize more debt and more risk taken and obviously uh, bond yields uh, extreme low bond yields they are are a very negative in the sense that investors are taking more and more risk for less and less return therefore th we, we are creating an imbalance between the the reality of risk and the uh, and and the price signals and that evidently uh, generates very large uh, very large challenges and definitely very large imbalances uh, in every economy. Well, I mean, the biggest imbalance, of course, is debt. We get questions about it all the time. Keith, how can you be bullish on U.S. growth given all the debt? And, and frankly, there's no way to answer that because they're on two, you know, the, the debt problem is a much longer duration problem than a short-term economic cycle, if that is indeed a tailwind. Um, so I wonder, uh, on that front, like, how do you answer that question about debt? I mean, you have a, an entire chapter in the book that's literally tired, titled, Debt is Not an Asset. Um, yeah, I, I, I just wanted to get your, 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 how you take that question from investors uh, or more broadly. I'm sure you get it all the time. Yes, I think that you've, you've just nailed it. It's, it's, the, it's the difference of duration. So one thing that uh, excess liquidity and massive debt does is that it shortens economic cycles. It makes them more abrupt. Mm -hmm. Therefore, uh, growth and recession periods become more, uh, more. You know, you see more and more periods in which, uh, in a in a in a longer term spiral of not really growing, <laughs> what you do get is periods in which the economy suddenly has an abrupt increase in why? Because as we're seeing in the US, consumption rises very, very well, yes. And you see a little bit of increase in capital expenditure. But if you look at it from a longer term perspective, uh, actually, it's a question of duration. Exactly. Is all of this debt is creating um, is creating an asset which is very quickly uh, generating a very short-term effect, which is uh, a little bit more consumption, a little bit more, uh, uh, you know, a little bit more investment. Then it all falls back uh, very quickly. So what we need to see is 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 basically the debt is creating stagnation, 
but within stagnation you have you know periods yeah. of, of little blips no i mean that, that, that i mean you almost have to communicate it like like that like so simple by moving your hands along the sine curve of a line because for whatever reason the intelligentsia of economists and mainstream media can't quite understand how to talk about one duration and get it right never mind them both at the same time um, I guess that's the definition of sanity, trying to maintain these countervailing thoughts at the same time in your head and not just like throw up on yourself. But the reality is that, you know, what, what do you think about that within the context of Europe's cycle? You know, as, yeah. uh, uh, t- to me, it, it's, it's almost crazy, but it shouldn't be, but it is, because it is. Uh, people are just coming to the realization, I suppose, that Europe is growing. I mean, Europe started growing or at least stopped being in a recession in 2013. You know, why is it that so many people think that Europe is back? And what do you think about that cycle in terms of where we are at this point in time? I think that what, what people are seeing is that the, the, the cycle of, uh, of stagnation of, of the economy in which you have, for example, very long-term trends that you cannot escape, like aging of the population, like overcapacity, like low return uh, invested capital. All those things are uh, things that you will definitely see uh, uh, generating further stagnation further down the line. Now, what we're seeing in the, in the European Union is that growth is coming because it's coming from a very low base. You have had a, you've gone from a depression to a recovery. And, and we are confusing recovery with growth. Recovery is not growth. Recovery is simply that you get, you get accustomed to that overcapacity simply staying idle, that the banks with all of their challenges are starting to make a little bit more, bit more money. That doesn't mean that they're making positive net income margins or that they're generating a, a, a high return on tangible assets. No, it means that they're just recovering. And that's what we're seeing. The, the European Union cannot, con, cannot be constantly in a, in a recession period. And that's what we are seeing right now. We're seeing that, that return, that V-shaped return uh, on, a, on a longer term trend line which is stagnation. Uh, you put up a, a note la- last week that definitively said that Eurozone growth uh, seems to have peaked. Now, can you go through that? Yes. If you, if you look at the PMIs that came, uh, came last week, you see that uh, something that's quite interesting is happening. The economies continue to be in expansion. However, the, the pace of that expansion is is much slower, and more importantly, it is uh, equally uh, debilitating, weakening in uh, services and in uh, industry. So what I think that, that we're seeing in the European Union is that because the recovery has, has been uh, generated fundamentally from an increase in exports, much larger uh, uh, trade surplus than expected, and a recovery in consumption, but capital expenditure, a gross formation of capital, that is not increasing uh, even less so at the levels at which money uh, money supply is growing. What you end up seeing is that uh, that period of expansion weakens very quickly. 
-hmm. And we are seeing it, for example, uh, right now with inflation expectations. Inflation expectations rose very, very quickly, probably too aggressively at the beginning of the year because of the base effect, because of oil prices. Yeah? And what uh, ends up happening right now is that we're seeing inflation expectations being revised downwards dramatically, almost 50%. So I think that what we're seeing is that at the end of the day, as much as we want to place a lot of uh, faith in monetary policy and a lot of faith in, in, in that recovery, France is still in stagnation, despite whoever wins the elections. Yeah? Uh, Italy is still in stagnation, so it's very complicated for the European Union, even if Spain or, or Portugal uh, come back from the lows, uh, it's very difficult for the European Union to generate growth above 1.72%. Mm, that's interesting. The amount of people that I speak to that are not Europeans, now this is interesting, I'm sure uh, you'll get at least a bit of a chuckle, but the amount of people three months ago, Daniel, that would tell me that it's different this time in France, you just wait and see, and this is post the election, uh, I just, for the life of me, can't, can't figure out how that could be true. I mean, demographically and from a debt perspective, we can go across all the different metrics, but I don't think it's different this time in France economically. Do you? It's not different. There's, there is nothing different. We've seen this before. Anybody that's been in the market for a period of time, uh, you and I, we've seen it. We've seen it. We saw it with Sarkozy. When <laughs> Sarkozy was elected president, we heard everywhere that uh, big reforms, big changes, etc. If you think about it, somebody was, told me the other day in, in France was telling me that if a president doesn't make drastic reforms in the first hundred days uh, in France, he's not going to make them. He's not going to make them. <laughs> you, you want to see what's the first big decision that the French uh, Prime Minister Macron has taken? The first uh, decision has been to nationalize a port because the Italians were going to buy it. <laughs> is, that, is that the reform that we're thinking about? So, and there's been no labor market reform. There's obviously been no public sector reform. The public sector, as you know, is one of the largest in the world. It's around 22% of the workforce. And, um, it, you know, it's a, it's a very uh, directed economy. It's the, the, the model that, by the way, that Mr. Macron, nothing against him, uh, learned in the public school of, of public servant, um, uh, learned is the uh, directed economy. So if, if the first decision of an allegedly free market-oriented prime minister is to nationalize uh, a port because it's going to be taken over by the Italians... Uh, I think that we should be a little bit skeptical about <laughs> saying it's going to be different this time. Well, actually, you know, and this was a great, and thanks for doing it, in the uh, Hedge Eye 21, which, is a, which was an interview you did for us, uh, you got asked which, which European country is the biggest cause for concern in your eyes. You did not say France, but you did mention the name of the country a couple times now already. Uh, can, can, can you get into what's going on uh, in Italy? Yeah. Well, the, the, the main problem of Italy is that um, it needs structural reforms that require a very strong government. Uh, Italy has had more than, I don't know, I, I think I've lost count, but more than 50 governments in the last 70 years. Um, so I think that the, 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 the main problem uh, for Italy right now is that it cannot 
undertake the drastic reforms it needs to clean up the banking system, which has uh, one of the largest percentages of non-performing loans, um, to uh, improve the, the business conditions, to improve the, the export conditions for companies, to allow SMEs to grow. Uh, this cannot happen with a government that it will likely be, again, in a very a weak minority and um, in an economy that, uh, again, suffers from those same uh, challenges that we were mentioning before. We were talking about aging of the population, a big problem in Italy, uh, divergence between the north and the south. The south continues to be a very challenging uh, part of the economy in Italy. A very good exporting sector, however, hindered by very aggressive regulation and very uh, and very misguided uh, bureaucratic uh, uh, excess. And um, and another one is obviously the excess of debt and the and the fact that the financial system did not undertake a reform like, for example, Spain did uh, and clean up. It's, uh, it's act as quickly as possible or at least present the real problem uh, in order to improve credit growth to SMEs and families. The base reality that both France and Italy, well, really, Spain, Portugal, Italy, France, are going to get older faster in their core spending cohort of the economy. We've shown this however many times we can, Daniel. You know it. Uh, it's the biggest spending populations around the world, 35 to 54-year-olds, effectively. We follow the growth rates of these populations. There is no place, no place, including Japan, that is going to be as bad as Spain Italy and France for the next five to ten years. And I wonder, you know, if, if that if, if there even is a solution to that, if there's not if there's not a basic acknowledgement that if that is your core consumption component of the economy, that there's nothing that can stop that decline. It's it's very difficult. And it's very difficult because uh, that problem was sorted out, for example, in Spain in the early 2000s with a massive increase in immigration coming from Latin America that came attracted by the construction boom. Um, but, but none of that is there anymore. And uh, the type of immigration that is coming to the European Union is uh, not the same type, is, is, a, is, is, is less easy to integrate is much more challenging in terms of the cost to the welfare state, um, and and you and the aging population uh, creates that uh, that big problem in the in the public accounts that is um, that is the pension deficit. The pension deficits uh, in the European Union are uh, very very high, and what governments uh, are doing uh, is to tax the productive and the and the parts of the economy that actually can can spend and invest um, uh, to maintain the pensions so by doing that you are having a double negative impact on the economy on one side debt is too high and the imbalances are too wide and on the other side you are taxing the ones that could actually lift the economy further therefore growth doesn't happen so it's uh, you know, it's one of the big challenges. This, uh, this, uh, this, this system, by the way, that uh, Japan was not able to sort out either. So, not a not an easy one to to figure out. Um, but if you if you really think about it, you know, the, a major central planning mistake uh, in 2011, as you know, was Jean Claude Trichet raising rates or tightening into a European economic slowdown. 
Um, do you think that that's the same risk now? Uh, we have more debt today than we had then. The demographic curve is worse today because we've had time and space to live through than it was then. Do you think that if, if they were to taper, tighten anything uh, that would tighten monetary conditions in the Eurozone, do you think that that would have a negative market impact? I don't think it would be the same. Um, I start in the book by by giving a little bit of credit to Mr. Trichet because if if really the problem of the European Union was to raise rates from one to one and a half percent, then my friend, we were in real trouble in the European Union. So if if that was the if, if that was a problem, is if businesses and countries were completely unable to survive with uh, such a ridiculous increase in rates, then the European Union was a much bigger problem, in a much bigger problem than what uh, than what people perceive. But let's let's go back to the to the situation with the, with the European Central Bank. I think that the European Central Bank right now doesn't find itself in the same problem because. Uh, right now, in the European economy, you don't have such a such a massive level of uh, debt at the corporate level, and you don't have families as indebted as you had them in uh, in that period. A good point. So, the the big problem right now is only at the at the government side. It's a big problem, but it's not the same as as in that time. Hmm. Now, um, in terms of how you would try to find a way out on on page one fifty three. Uh, you go through that. How to get how to get away from these expansive policies? What do you think? What do you think should be done? Well, it has to be a combination of guidance and policy. The first thing is, central banks need to be a lot more clear about guidance on the things that they do control. One of the big mistakes that central banks have made in the past years has been to um, talk constantly about things that are second derivatives of policy at best, like unemployment, like growth. Mm -hmm. Central banks don't bring growth, and obviously central banks don't create jobs. So what they, but what they do control and what they do have understanding about is credit growth, what type of credit growth is being uh, created. What they do understand is excess liquidity, and what they do understand, obviously, is um, whether the prices of risky assets are becoming too aggressively um, uh, priced or, or, or they're correct. So they, th- the first thing that they need to do is to be a bit more, uh, quite a bit more uh, detailed about that. And they're starting to be, at least I can, I can, uh, uh, we can give a little bit of credit to Mr. Draghi for being a little bit more detailed in that front. The second thing, not just guidance, the second thing needs to be that the European Central Bank, like any other central bank, cannot say we're going to tighten monetary policy in such and such period if this and that happens and then not do it. Because that creates the perverse incentive in markets of uh, behaving in what in the book I mentioned in, in, in by the bad news hmm? so because by the bad news because then the central bank will have to will have to take expansionary measures uh, so i think that they need to be a lot stricter and i think that that's why in uh, implementing a tailor rule that uh, leaves very very clear when the central bank is going to start normalizing monetary policy and that it doesn't put it at the discretion of a committee's decision but on hard data 
that would certainly at least put a lid on the risk of creating massive bubbles and then a bigger problem that cannot be sorted out, mm-hmm. lowering interest rates and increasing liquidity. So a little bit more rules based on the tilt. And that argument's obviously been made in the U.S. And then once you get to the guy who wants to be 100 percent rules based, people are scared of him uh, or her. So I, I wonder who's going to have any rules uh, based system. But do you think do you have any hope that that could happen sooner in the ECB or in, in, in Europe uh, before it happens here in the U.S.? I think it has to happen because I think that by now. Central banks, they might not agree with it in public, but, but people and, and experts within the central banks are starting to realize that monetary policy and extremely loose monetary policy, first, it's not creating inflation. Second, as the Bank of International Settlement, as so many analysts are showing, is creating zombie companies to rise, is making, uh, is, is, is perpetuating imbalances, and is definitely making uh, valuations and markets get excessive. So I think that in some form, they need to go back there. I think it, because, because a central bank Uh, going from having credibility to having no credibility whatsoever and then having a big monetary crisis is is a very, very thin line. Uh, Therefore, in order to restore credibility, they need to be more factual. They need to be less about we think that maybe that yes, but no, but, you know, the sort of little Britain approach to, to communication. They need to be more factual. And they need to do it because... If they lose credibility from the financial markets, from citizens, etc., in a period of such high liquidity, then they have they run the risk of creating a much bigger problem, which is a monetary crisis in the middle of a currency war. Imagine. Yeah, I mean, this is um, well. You called this your biggest fear in the Hedge I Twenty One questions. This is probably the best answer I've heard, uh, which is your biggest fear is the glorification of ignorance. Absolutely, absolutely. We, 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 we've, gone, we've come to the point in which you have uh, almost uh, on a daily basis, you see people in, that, that are praised for saying this time is different. Uh, and fun- fundamentals uh, don't matter. Uh, it's a new paradigm. Uh, so it, it's really scary. It is really scary. It's really scary when people tell you that uh, governments should not worry and they should issue as much debt as they want because it's a fantastic asset and um, it doesn't create any risk or, or any consequence. So all these things are very, very dangerous, are yeah. very dangerous. And they're very dangerous because they're being glorified as a, as a new way of thinking, as a different approach to understanding money and understanding economics. They're not. It's the same old lunacy that made Nero, the emperor, decide to put a little bit of steel in the silver coins and think that nothing was going to change and almost destroy the economy in the process. <laughs> Imagine Nero had Twitter, I tell you. Uh... <laughs> no, I don't even want to think about that. <laughs> <laughs> no, but thank you very much. I mean, I, I would, I'd, I'd be a lot more scared if we didn't have, you know, people like you writing great books like this that make us think. I mean, th- these are the economic truths. This is the reality. Like you said, until we're talking at least within the area code of the truth, there's no real way to get away from what we've done to mess this up. So I, I, I genuinely appreciate all the time you've put into to writing books. I know that that's not 
an easy thing to do, but, but being concise and teaching people something uh, in a way that in a very difficult space, which is economics, uh, to absorb. I think that you've, you've taught a lot of people, and I think you're going to te- teach a lot more uh, by the time this is all said and done. So thanks for that. Thank you very much. All right. He's Daniel Lacaye. You can find him on Twitter. He is prolific on Twitter. He is the uh, purveyor of all economic truths on Twitter. Uh, We go back and forth together, too. We have a lot of fun. Uh, But again, he's the chief economist and CIO at Tressus. And I'm Keith McCullough. You know where to find me.